This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Trey. Thank you for joining us for Tuesdays with Trey. You know, crime's been in the news a lot lately. Most of that crime is prosecuted in state court. Uh, But there is a role for the federal government to play. And I want us to stop right there for a second, but not much longer than a second. But stop for a second. Have you ever wondered why the federal government investigates and prosecutes crime? What gives the federal government the authority to do so? Because if we're going to say that most crime is state and local, I think it's important for us to understand why that is. And if a smaller percentage of crime is federal, but yet there is this public perception that federal must mean more important or more significant, we got to evaluate whether or not any of those preconceived notions are actually accurate. So we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I think it is helpful to know there are some crimes, a handful, maybe, that are mentioned in the U.S. Constitution. These are crimes like, I'm going based on memory now, but treason and piracy and maybe counterfeiting. And I think there's a fourth, but you'll have to check behind me and make sure. So there are crimes mentioned in the Constitution. And there's a basis for prosecuting crime at the federal level that therefore goes all the way back to the beginning. And then there are what I call status cases. You may have another word for it, but I call them status cases. Something is prosecutable in one jurisdiction or another based on the status of the victim. The murder of a federal judge would be a federal crime. The murder of a federal witness the murder of a federal law enforcement officer it doesn't have to be murder. It could also be the assault in the line of duty. Those would be federal crimes, but you know, murder is almost always a state crime. So it actually, actually could be prosecuted in both courts, but there is a federal nexus. There is a reason for the federal government to want to be involved. And then there was an increase in the federalization of crime through something also found in the Constitution called the Commerce Clause. And you see federal crime rooted in the fact that it has an impact in more than one state. So if we back up, there are a handful of crimes mentioned in the U.S. Constitution with particularity. And then we have the status crimes where based on the status of the victim, Uh, It is prosecutable in federal court. And then we have this interest in the Commerce Clause and whether or not some unlawful activity impacts more than one state. But that that power, that Commerce Clause power is not without limit. 
And this is 100% based on memory, which means it's probably 100% wrong. But I'm going to say it anyway, because because it might be right. I think there were two federal crimes struck down, at least in my lifetime, by the courts because there was insufficient nexus to interstate commerce. In other words, Congress passed a law. One was what they call the Gun Free School Zone Act, and the other dealt with domestic violence. So, you know, Congress obviously interested in stopping domestic violence, interested in stopping the free flow of guns in school zones. So they passed a law. And the Supreme Court said, look, that conduct is certainly conduct that we want to proscribe with an O, proscribe, stop, end. But there is insufficient interstate connectivity. There's insufficient interstate nexus for Congress to get involved in local school zones and intrastate domestic violence. So again, those crimes would still be 100% prosecutable, but not in federal court. They would be in state court. So I digress, but I'm digressing for a reason. It is worth understanding how something can be awful and terrible, and we want to stop it, but there is still no role for the federal government. Because I think based on movies and literature and just, you know, just the way people talk, we equate federal with more serious. We think, well, that's a federal crime, therefore it must be more serious. And we should not draw that corollary. We should, when we hear federal, we should think, okay, is it one of the crimes listed in the Constitution? Is it a status crime? Or is it sufficiently connected to interstate commerce? There is an active role for the federal government as it relates to crime in general and violent crime in particular. Uh, There's an active role that we just went through in terms of actually passing the law. And there is a funding role where the federal government can help with crime enforcement, crime prevention, crime investigation, crime prosecution, and violent crime in particular. But I'm going to leave the money for another day. We'll talk about the funding some other day. For today, I want us to focus on the active day-to-day role the federal government can play through federal law enforcement and prosecutors, because we see a lot of stories about violent crime. And I'm sure there may be one going through your mind right now. I mean, I, I am still heartbroken over the young woman in California just trying to work her way through graduate school, working at a furniture store, and she was stabbed to death. And, and, and there, you know, there are those stories with all too much frequency in our country. And so we hear about this spike in violent crime and we hear about the, you know, record high homicide rates in certain large cities. And we want someone to do something, but we need to figure out who that someone is and what that someone can do, which is why we have to understand the interconnectivity of state and federal crime and state and federal prosecutors. I mean, murder is a perfect example. There there really is no more serious violent crime than murder. But it is rarely a federal crime, rarely. In 25 years, when I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office, the 25 years before I got there, there had been one 
federal murder prosecution in federal court. One. In the six years I was there, there was one. One in six years. You move to the state system and you got maybe one a week. I think we average like 30 a year. So for folks who think the federal system is more serious, one murder case in 25 years versus the state system where it's about one a week. So when you hear soaring homicide rates, you should think state and local prosecutors with the one big exception, which is the status of the victim. If it's a federal judge, if it's a federal prosecutor, if it's a federal witness, if it's a federal law enforcement officer acting in the line of duty, that would be the one big exception. But almost all murder is state and local armed robbery. That's serious. Where's that prosecuted? Usually state court, but it can be prosecuted in federal court for two reasons. Number one, the store could impact interstate commerce. It could be a national chain. It could be a Best Buy or a Costco or something where the goods travel in interstate commerce. Bank robbery, that's serious. You know, our banking system is obviously uh, an interconnected system. It obviously impacts interstate commerce. But again, every armed robbery and every bank robbery can also be prosecuted in state court. They just, particularly with bank robberies, are usually prosecuted in federal court. Don't have to be. They just usually are. Carjacking. Was the car made in another state? Did it happen on the interstate? If those two are true, it could be prosecuted in federal court. Regardless of whether or not it's true, they could be prosecuted in state court. Same with kidnapping. Did it cross state lines? Drug laws. I, you know, I haven't been over every part of South Carolina, but I don't think there are any like opium production facilities or cocoa plants in South Carolina. So if it's cocaine, it almost had to travel in interstate commerce, right? Marijuana gets a little dicier because you can grow marijuana in certain states. They do. But yet the federal government has decided it does have sufficient interest in narcotics that almost all of those cases can be prosecuted in federal court. So there are Crimes that can be prosecuted in both. There are crimes that cannot be prosecuted in the federal system. But there is one tremendous advantage. There is one category of case that if you want to do something about violent crime, both preventing it and actually um getting the attention of the perpetrators after the crime is committed. There is one huge area that for the life of me, I do not understand why the federal government does not play a more active role. And so before we get to that, I mean, you may be saying, okay, well, why are we even talking about the differences between state and federal court? I mean, why, I mean, are there advantages to a federal prosecution? Yes, there are. Yes. The speed it is so much quicker to get to court in federal court. Things, all things move quicker in federal court. The federal prosecutors 
and I was one and I love them. And I got a ton of friends that still are. They don't have the same workloads or caseloads as state prosecutors. When I was the DA, a state prosecutor, we had folks that had caseloads in the 500s, 500 files on their desk. You're not going to find any federal prosecutor. You're not going to find a federal prosecutor that has 50 open files on his or her desk. So the workloads are completely different. The workloads for the judges are different. The sentencing is more uniform in the federal system because it is a unified system. The juries are drawn differently from the way they're drawn in most states. The judges are there for life. So the argument goes that they have more independence and they can rule the way they want to rule and sentence the way they want to sentence because they're never going to be in front of the voters or never going to be in front of a legislative body and never have to be up for reelection again. Most federal crimes can also be prosecuted in state court. And that is what we call dual jurisdiction. And because of that, the feds are going to take the better cases. If it's a really, really, really good bank robbery, the feds are going to take it. If it's like what I had, somebody tried to rob a bank with a can of squash uh, that they represented as a bomb, that's probably not as good a case. And that one might wind up in state court. Every drug case I can think of can be prosecuted in both state and federal court because of that interstate nexus. There is one category that I think if you want to do something about violent crime starting tomorrow, you don't need any new statutes. You just need a willingness. And that would be firearms cases. I want you to ask yourself, how, what is the state of federal firearms law? And by that, I mean, I'm not talking about the Second Amendment. I'm talking about what laws are already on the books that relate to who cannot legally possess a firearm. I'm not talking about using the firearm. I'm talking about possessing it. Possessing it actually, constructively, jointly, you cannot even possess a firearm. And so when we're talking about murder cases, somebody's already dead. And if the goal of the justice system is to prevent the harm, then would you not want to prosecute the gun case before the gun is used? I mean, if you're waiting until the murder case, then somebody is already dead. And if you know that the possession, the mere possession of a firearm by a prohibited person is a federal crime, then why would you not be more actively involved in the prosecution of these possession cases? So who cannot lawfully possess a gun or a bullet for that matter? And I don't mean Look, I mean, fully automatic guns are already illegal. So whenever you hear the phrase fully automatic, you should be very skeptical. They're already illegal. I'm not even talking about what people refer to as semi-automatic weapons. I'm talking about a pistol, a revolver in the glove compartment of your car. There are federal laws that say there are categories of people who cannot lawfully possess that. That category, those categories include people that have been convicted of a felony. So what is a felony? It is any crime for which you could have received more than one year in prison. Doesn't matter what you got. What could you have gotten? 
there are a long list of crimes that are what we call federal felonies. You could have gotten more than one year in prison. And if you are convicted or plead guilty to one of those, you cannot lawfully possess a firearm. So convicted felons, when you see these shootings, when you see these gun battles, you should ask yourself, I wonder if anyone involved in that gun battle was a convicted felon. I wonder if they have a record. I wonder if it was unlawful for them to even possess the gun on the way to the shootout. We're not talking about the shootout itself. We're talking about on the way to the shootout, you're committing a federal crime. You're committing a federal crime if you have the gun in your bedroom, if you're a convicted felon. Wait right there. We'll have more next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What's another category? Fugitive from justice. If you're, if you're on the run, if you are an unlawful user of or addicted to any control substance, think about that. An unlawful user of of or convicted or addicted to any control substance. You cannot lawfully possess a firearm. If you have been adjudicated mentally ill, you cannot lawfully possess a firearm. Been involuntarily hospitalized, involuntarily committed to a, to a mental health treatment facility cannot lawfully possess a firearm. If you are unlawfully in the United States, you cannot lawfully possess a firearm. If you've been dishonorably discharged from the, from the military, if you've renounced your citizenship, if you are subject to an active court order restraining you from harassing or stalking or threatening an intimate partner or, or their child, if you've been convicted of misdemeanor domestic violence, misdemeanor. So all felonies, you can't possess a gun. Misdemeanor domestic violence, subject to a court order, restraining order, order of protection, fugitive from justice, unlawful user of drugs, not not in the country lawfully. Those are all categories of people that are in violation of federal law by just simply possessing a gun. So what the federal government can be doing immediately, immediately today before lunch is working with state and local law enforcement and prosecutors and finding out who those people are. The FBI does not stop people for broken taillights. The FBI does not stop people for changing lanes without using a signal. Neither does ATF. Neither does DEA. Those are state and local cops. So it's local and state cops they're having that primary interaction with someone. So let's assume you do that. Let's assume you stop someone for a traffic infraction and you get consent to search or you have the lawful right to search and you find a firearm and you run the rap sheet and they're a convicted felon. Nobody's been shot. Nobody's been robbed. But if that record is bad, wouldn't you want to prosecute the person? I mean, wouldn't you want, wouldn't you want to put them in prison before they shoot somebody? 
So when you see the attorney general or federal prosecutors on TV or the FBI, ATF, DEA, when you see them or you read about them, you should be asking, you should be asking, are we doing everything we possibly can to combat violence? Are you using the biggest tool that you have, which are the federal firearm statutes? You don't have to wait until somebody is killed. I did one murder case in six years as a federal prosecutor. I did more gun cases than I can possibly count. And I will never know whether or not, not that stopped a murder. I just know that they were in federal prison and we won't find out. We won't find out what it stopped because they were put in prison before they could commit the crime. And then I left. I left the federal system and I went to become a state prosecutor. But I'll tell you what I didn't forget. I didn't forget the vast power that federal agents and federal prosecutors have as it relates to firearms. So I did exactly what we are discussing today. And I did it with a guy named Lance Crick. Lance Crick is still a federal prosecutor and he is married to one of my favorite people in the world who is Cindy Crick. Cindy and I worked together in state court and she was my chief of staff when I was in Congress. She is fantastic prosecutor. And Lance is a great prosecutor too. He's just in the federal system. And so when I became the DA, we did exactly what I'm saying. State and local cops make a stop or they, or there's a burglary or there's something involving a firearm. Then you actively get the feds to look at it and see whether or not that is a good case for prosecution. And we had the most incredible, we called it summer of silence because we wanted less violent crime. So we accepted the reality that if we can take the guns out of the hands of people who are not supposed to have them lawfully before they pull the trigger, then maybe things will be quieter. They'll be more silent. So we called it summer of silence. I had the easy part. I just had to go through all my files and talk to the local cops and say, anytime there's a firearm involved, let's let the feds take a look at it and see whether or not it is a case that can be prosecuted in federal court. And they did, and we did, and it was a fantastic partnership. So, yeah, crime rising in the United States, you got most people, I hope, accepting the public safety is the primary function of state government. There is a role for the federal government to play. There is a role. We don't need new laws. I mean, we may need new laws, but how about we try the ones we got? There are large categories of people who cannot even possess a gun. And we're not even getting to using it. Can't possess it. Can't possess a bullet. When done together. The state and the federal systems can pack a powerful punch when it comes to keeping us safe. But, but, but the agents and the prosecutors have to use the tools they have. And I get it. Gun cases are not the sexiest cases on the docket. Murder cases, those are really, really interesting. Emotions run high. That's usually what young men and women go to law school. They want to stand in front of a jury in a high stakes case. And I get it. A gun in a glove compartment with somebody who's got a rap sheet from here to my backyard is not the most fascinating case to stand in front of a jury with. But I thought the goal was to stop the murders. 
And if the goal is to stop the murders, then you have to take the uninteresting cases so you don't do the interesting cases. Lance Crick, thank you. It should be a model for the rest of the country. You want to do something about violent crime? Whether or not, you know, there's always talk about more laws. We need this. We need that. Gun prosecutions went down under President Obama and President and Vice President Biden. I don't know whether gun prosecutions went up or down under President Trump. I don't know that the numbers are available, but it's worth looking at. Are you using what you currently have? If you are and you still need more, let us know. But if you're not using the most powerful weapon you have, which are our federal firearm statutes, then when you want to start there, there is a role for the federal government to play. And I wish they'd start playing it. And little old Spartanburg, South Carolina can be a model for the rest of the country. And speaking of South Carolina, I want to say congratulations to Dawn Staley for the Gamecocks winning the Women's Basketball National Championship. Aaliyah Boston gets a ton of attention and credit, and she deserves every bit of that. And then some. She's an amazing player, and she's actually more fun to listen to when she's being interviewed after the game. I mean, she has a poise that most members of Congress do not have, and she's probably, what, 21, 20? But as great as she is, I want to single out another player that played in the national championship game, a young woman by the name of Destiny Henderson, who played, in my opinion, the game of her life. And watching her progress from when she showed up on campus as a freshman to watching where she was last night in her last game ever as a collegiate basketball player is to me what sports is all about. The development, the the maturation, she's a fast, fast, fast player. And when she was a freshman, every now and again, it looked like, wow, she's just going too fast. And then I watched her last night playing against, you know, Paige Beckers and others, some of the best women's basketball players in the world. And she just had the game of her life. So career high in points, what a way to go out. National champions, game of your life. Well done, Destiny Henderson. Great career at the University of South Carolina. Uh, Don't forget the Masters this week. Um, Amazing golf tournament. Uh, Watch it if you get a chance. Thank you for joining us for Tuesdays with Trey. We will see you next Tuesday. Hope you have a great week. Thank you. Bye. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.